The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on China-Africa relations through training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Podcast Network. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, China Global South's managing editor, who joins us today, as usual, from Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, it has been a very lively week this week in the standoff between China and the multilateral development banks. Those are the World Bank, the IMF, and this whole question about Chinese debt in developing countries. A big breakthrough came on Monday when the Chinese government, through the China Exim Bank, sent a letter to the Sri Lankan government saying that it would fully back Sri Lanka's debt restructuring plan with the International Monetary Fund. Now, the reason why this is surprising is because back in January, the China Exim Bank sent a letter saying that it would offer a two-year debt moratorium, and that was not enough, especially when you compare it against to what the Paris Club lenders were offering and India, which was 10 years of debt repayment and another 15 years of debt restructuring on top of that. China's two-year offer came up short and did not meet the IMF's requirements. And so what we had was this big standoff between the Chinese the multilateral development banks and the Paris Club. Now, the problem is, is the Chinese have said that they do not want to participate in debt restructuring until the multilateral development banks take what is called a haircut. Now, that means losses on their loans. Now, that's something that the multilateral development banks say they don't do. And the reason why they say they don't do it is because they take the loss, what they say, at the front end by getting very, very cheap loans. And then they are what's called a preferred creditor. So on the, at the back end, if there are problems, they are above the fray and don't take losses. The other fight that the Chinese are having on this is they want commercial creditors, those are the bondholders, to also accept losses. And now they've said they will, but the bondholders don't want to take any losses until they see what the Chinese are doing. So, Cobus, it's this situation where everybody's got a gun pointed at everybody else and nothing gets done. Now, this is why the breakthrough in Sri Lanka is so interesting. It also begs the question as to whether or not what happened in Sri Lanka is now going to apply to Zambia, Ghana, and Ethiopia that are also now in the debt restructuring process. Zambia, of course, has been in this now for, what, almost a year, if not longer. And so there's a real question as to whether or not we're going to see progress in Zambia. So, Kobus, that's a long wind-up for we just don't know what's going to happen. Something is happening right now. We just don't know what the true extent of it is. Yes. I mean, obviously, the people the people in Sri Lanka and other debt-distressed countries, you know, must be on tender hooks. It must be such a stressful situation, particularly as they are slowly kind of running out of uh, foreign currency, which then affects things like the importation of medicine. I think I think one of one of the big issues here is that I think we're in a real kind of historical inflection point, particularly as regards to how the development financing system is going to work in the future. So, Sure, at the moment this is this tends to be a fight between China and western led you know entities like multilateral development banks and the western private sector but there's a bigger issue involved you know kind of a north south fight kind of involved here too in relation to how these countries are supposed to pay for development particularly as climate change is barreling down on all of us i think this is going to be one of those moments where you look back and you're like oh okay this is this is one of those kind of kind of crossroads moments you know well that great power fight was on full display in beijing this week on tuesday chinese foreign minister ching gang gave his first press conference on the sidelines of the National People's Congress. That's part of the two sessions event that happens every year. That's the big legislative gathering in China. And boy, that was a fiery press conference, mostly directed at the United States. We won't go into the details of the U.S. portions of it, but he did talk quite a bit about the Belt and Road and even raised the debt issue. And that makes it very interesting to consider the timing of what happened in Sri Lanka. And maybe it's coincided with this press conference. Again, we're all trying to read through the tea leaves here to figure out what's going on, but just something for us to consider. Let's try and sort this out. And what I wanted to do today with our show was invite two people who follow this as closely as anybody else does to see if they can shed some light and get their perspectives on it in order to better understand 
understand what's going on so we can try again and forecast and think about what's going to happen in Africa. Yunan Chen is a research fellow at the Overseas Development Institute in London. Last year, regular listeners of the show will remember she joined us to talk about the fascinating paper that she wrote with her colleague Chris Humphrey, China in the Multilateral Development Bank's evolving strategies of a new power. So she has some real insights on China's relationship with the MDBs, and we're thrilled to have you back on the show again today, Yunan. Thanks so much, Eric. Hi, Kobus. Uh, really, really, really delighted to be here. It's great to speak with you again, and we're also thrilled to have our old friend, who we've had quite regularly on the show, Jude Moore, who's a senior policy fellow at the Center for Global Development in Washington. He and I have been chatting in the back channels for several weeks on trying to figure out what's going on. He also wrote a fascinating blog post on the CGD website. I'll put a link to this in the show notes. Will China play its part in addressing African debt distress? Jude, a very good morning to you in Washington. Thank you, Eric, and uh, good morning to you and Kobus. Hi, Yilin. Great to be here. And it's a reunion of Jude and Yunan. Yunan used to work in uh, CGD in Washington as well, and so it's wonderful for everybody to be back together. Thank you both for joining us and helping us try to sort through what's going on. Yunan, let's try and, and start with you to get a little bit of background in terms of China's relationships with the multilateral development banks. Up until this year, I wouldn't have thought that this was a contentious relationship. Based on reading your report, Last year and the history, China seemed to have a rather collaborative relationship, not only with the World Bank and the IMF, but also with regional development banks as well, like the African Development Bank. Can you give us a little bit of the background to set the stage for our discussion today about China and the MDBs based on the research that you've done in this space? Sure. Uh, I mean... I think first thing to say is that China's relationship with the MDB system is one that's been evolving and changing, sometimes quite dramatically, over the last several decades. And in the words of a colleague on this uh, year, you, you know, China has had a, a sort of a shift from a romanticism to a greater realism in its relationship and attitude to the MDBs. I mean, when it first joined the World Bank and the IMF at the end of the 1970s, beginning of the 1980s, and, and then in the process also joined some of the bigger regional banks, this was very much, you know, prioritizing its own developmental needs. It needed capital for its own domestic investment, its own economic growth. But it really valued these institutions as centers of knowledge and learning and saw them as opportunities for its own capacity building and also as it was growing as a donor and development partner as well, as a model to perhaps learn from in how it does development overseas as well, uh, in managing foreign exchange reserves, for example. But throughout these decades, China has really been trying to seek greater voice in these institutions. And in the last 20 years, this has really been a painful and challenging process. And we see this particularly at the World Bank, where there were shareholding negotiations that began in 2003 to try and increase the voting power of not just China, but also other developing country and borrower countries. And whilst there were some reforms in 2010 and then in 2018. You know, China's shareholding still doesn't reflect its economic weight. It sits at around 6.1%. And so this has contributed to this perception that you know, China will never fully be represented at these MDBs. And, and in some ways, they will remain a policy bank of the West. And having an American selected head consistently for the World Bank has also, let's say, contributes to that perception. That's not a perception, though. That's a reality if you're saying that they haven't gone up in share, given the fact that China today is the second largest economy in the world. There's some truth to that criticism, right? I would say so. You know, there's been a, also uh, a strong record of collaboration with the World Bank uh, in many ways. The Ministry of Finance has put in money into trust funds in the World Bank. China has significantly increased, although the overall contribution is small, the speed at which China has increased its contributions to IDA shows it is a willing contributor to the World Bank. However, this relationship has been a little bit more volatile in recent years. And in uh, 2021 as well, there was a significant controversy around the World Bank doing business report, um, which was you know, one component in this sort of growing rivalry that we've seen between the US and China playing out in the multilateral stage. 
Jude, you spend a lot of time in, in Washington, D.C., and obviously American officials have, have recently been really kind of leaning into blaming China as a key kind of like barrier to debt renegotiation. In private conversations, do you get a sense that American officials like acknowledge this kind of like power imbalance that China is chafing against? Or is, it, or is everyone simply kind of framing it as China being a spoiler in a system that actually works well? Again, thank you. And and this is the piece. I, I, what I've been trying to do for the last couple of weeks is simply inject another thread of narrative into this. So on the one side, you, you have what like Yuna, Yuna has spoken about. We have a system, and, and I've, I've said this again, that in most systems, you have rule takers and you have rule makers. In 1945, China, India, Brazil were all rule takers. But over time, as their economic power has grown, they have chafed at the idea of remaining permanently rule takers. They want to be rule makers, but they've been prevented from doing so, as Yunan just pointed out, especially when it comes to these multilateral agencies. So the suspicion then uh, from China and that the multilateral agencies, uh, development banks are simply you know, extensions of, of Western policy and consequently Western policy banks. But that's not the only narrative here. And you have the West on, on this side arguing that they're guarantors of the international system as it is. And consequently, these structures need to remain as they are. There are other participants in this structure, though, who do not share that view, whether on the Western side or on the Chinese side. So, for example, people in Africa. So here in Washington, the conversation really has become subsumed in a bigger great power competition. And it is my view, at least listening to Western policymakers here in Washington and also in Europe, that in a lot of ways, they're using the debt issue as sort of a cudgel to pound China. They see a, a weakness for China here and they're pressing an advantage. And China itself is resisting this because it doesn't want to be forced to make these kinds of concessions. However, it comes back to this third option and this third thread in the narrative that it isn't just the West and China in great power competition. It's that thing that we see in Africa that when two elephants fight, it is the ground that suffers. Well, the ground wants to be able to have a say. The grass wants to be able to have a say here. And my hope is that over the course of our conversation, I can at the very least inject that thread into the narrative. Yeah, we, we definitely want to talk about that. Yunan, can you respond to what Jude is saying in terms of that this isn't really about debt, this is about great power competition? Is that how you're seeing it also in London? Uh, absolutely. I mean, from my perspective, this kind of embedding of the debt issue into a bigger political issue is supremely unhelpful to the borrowers, the debt distressed sovereigns that uh, whose economies and, and their own of, uh, future growth prospects are at stake. I mean, it's quite ironic and depressing to see how, you know, the future of Zambia can be so influenced by a scandal around a balloon, for example. But I think there's a it's an unfortunate reality that debt has become one of the facets within this amphitheater of US-China rivalry that sits, unfortunately, below some of these bigger issues, uh, including how the US perceives China's uh, interventions in the Russia-Ukraine conflict, for example. And I think until some of these bigger geopolitical tensions can be softened, it's really, really hard to move this debt discussion away from a political one and onto a technical one where there can be progress made. But the Chinese keep coming back to the same issue over and over again, that this isn't... A, now, from their point of view, they'll say this isn't about great power competition, just trying to channel what Qinggang and what Mao Ning, the spokesperson at the Chinese foreign ministry, are saying, that this is really about restructuring the way that the multilateral development banks do business, that they must take haircuts the same way that the uh, the Chinese are doing it. And they also want concessions from the private creditors. And the private creditors, as best as I can tell, have done nothing, have made no concessions. The United States and the UK governments have done nothing to ease up the fiduciary laws that make it easier for bondholders to provide debt forgiveness. So while it's easy for us to put this into the matrix of great power competition, there are also some technical issues that need to be addressed that the Chinese have been saying. And I get the sense that in many developing countries, when the United States and Europe and the UK talk about the rules-based order, they talk about the MDBs and the supremacy and, the, and their creditor preferences that they have, uh, their, or their 
preferred creditor status. You know, remember that in, in Asia and Africa, the memories of the IMF and the World Bank are not always very positive. So when China is trying to take a stick and hit the piñata very hard, not everybody in the developing South is thinking that this is necessarily a bad thing. So Yunnan, can you talk about some of the technical arguments that the Chinese are making to reform the system or at least call for what they say is equity? On the technical side, I'm afraid I'm a little bit thin on that. You know, there's been a lot of considered arguments made around why the World Bank and the MDBs can't take haircuts, you know, to do with their preferred creditor status, to do their AAA credit rating. But when China sort of levels this accusation at the MDBs, there is not an unreasonable argument behind it because there is a precedent for the MDBs giving debt relief. And this was in the 2005 MDRI, which was sort of under the HIPAA initiative from two decades ago. It was very, very small in scale. It was only three MDBs. But, you know, in terms of optics, that, I think, from a Chinese perspective, signals that well, you were able to do this once upon a time. Why are you making these arguments now? And especially in the context of other ongoing pushes for reform in the MDB institutions, where many researchers, including Chris Humphrey and others at ODI, have explored, you know, the MDBs can be doing a lot more and be taking a lot more risk without sacrificing this AAA credit rating. So that argument, I think it hangs a little bit uh, fragile. Yes. So, Jude, you wrote in your blog post, Will China Play Its Part in Addressing African Debt Distress?, that this question of the preferred creditor status threatens to undermine the very function and the role of the MDBs in the process. Can you speak to that question of should the MDBs take the haircuts that China's calling for? Yeah, you know, and, and I think to Yunan's point, I'm one of those people sympathetic to China's argument here. One of the points I make is that just the size of China's portfolio, and if China just willingly goes along, it may, China there's this risk that, for example, with what happened in, in, in Sri Lanka, we're beginning to ask now, why not Zambia, right? Because Sri Lanka's, China's exposure in Sri Lanka is higher than in Zambia. So if, if say, Sri Lanka uses the same IMF process, what is to hold up in Zambia? And this is what my thinking is what the Chinese feared, that just even though it's going to be on a case-by-case basis, by making a concession in one case, it applies across the entire portfolio. And so this is something they want to push back against. But I raised two, two main points here. One is that first, it should be clear though, that we should not be treating policy banks as we treat the MDBs. Now, whether China sees the MDBs as sort of policy banks of the West, that's, you know, that's China's view and it's free to have those views, right? Because the MDBs, at least the World Bank, exists for two reasons. One, the, the twin goals of the World Bank, one, is to reduce extreme poverty. And number two, it's to uh, invest in shared prosperity. The international financial system can continue to function without China exim, without India exim, without US exim. But it needs the World Bank. It needs the MDBs. And so there has to be a distinction between MDBs and policy banks. Now, I'm willing to concede that, yes, using a process similar to the MDRI, maybe leveraging like the piece you shared with me yesterday, leveraging SDRs and demanding that countries make some sort of in exchange for some policy changes, whether improvement in public financial management or investment in, in climate related stuff, that the MDBs take some sort of cut. But I want to be sure that whatever process we use has to, at its core, maintain the ability of the MDBs to borrow cheaply from international capital markets and lend to poor countries. And like I said, you know, Deborah Brodigam has this piece in Foreign Affairs that shows that, you know, a significant portion of the debt is with MDBs. You know, Hannah Ryder has made the same point, but I'm, I'm happy that to point that out because for me, the system is working as it is designed. For countries like Chad and countries like Liberia and countries like uh, Guinea-Bissau, you want them to borrow from the World Bank. You want them to borrow from the African Development Bank, where the, the quality of project selection is higher, the tenure of the loan is longer, the terms of the loans uh, in terms of interest are lower. I mean, for poor countries, you want that kind of financing to exist. So if we have a crisis in which it looks like the African Development Bank or the World Bank has a lot of those loans on its books, that's not necessarily a bad thing. And whatever process we go through through debt resolution is to ensure that the World Bank and the African Development Bank remain capable of continuing to lend to countries in that position. So that's why I think, you know, 
the you know China's argument. I should say one final thing here, and then I let uh, you know respond. Over the last ten years, at least from 2010 to 2020, no country's firms have benefited more from MDB procurement than China. In 2019 alone, Chinese firms won seven point four billion dollars in MDB contracts. And that's one because of how concentrated Chinese firms are in construction and how much of MDB lending goes out in uh, for infrastructure construction because of the value size. So at the exact same moment, China is talking about MDBs taking a haircut. I mean, again, in, 19, in 2019, that was 14% of MDB lending from those from those banks. So China has consistently benefited from the MDB system and the lending that has allowed Chinese firms to get greater and greater share of construction markets. And now we come to this point and China is... is talking to the MDBs as if it is something separate from that. And so that's why I think, you know, there's a bit of hypocrisy on the side of China, but I think the MDBs also ought to be able to relent and be able to find a way technically that they can take cuts without threatening their preferred creditor status. You know, and I wonder if we could also shift the discussion a little bit towards private credit. So, you know, during the same era that, that we saw a ballooning in, in Chinese lending to Global South, we also saw a, a massive increase in lending, uh, in commercial rated lending and, and you, you know, kind of Eurobond issuance and, in, you know, kind of in other forms of, of, of commercial lending. So I was wondering what you made of the pro, of, of the kind of positioning of these private lenders in the, the debt renegotiations so far and what what kind of, you know, what steps are open to the world to try and kind of, you know, kind of make the kind of debt renegotiation on that side a little bit more efficient? Sure. Uh, just to address um, Judo's point and, and to add a little bit on the multilateral side, if I can just add, you know, the MDRI from two decades ago, that was also a politically negotiated initiative. Uh, it, it wasn't something that just happened in isolation outside of the MDBs, uh, within the MDBs. It was something where finance ministers, including, you know, big donors like the UK came forward and said, we will support the MDBs no matter what. And there were fresh injections of capital into these institutions. And I do think ironically, you know, this is something that China has been trying to do as well as it's trying to gain more voice in the MDBs. It's, it's also tried to increase its capital contributions to these institutions and, and faced a lot of hurdles to do so because of this kind of fear of Chinese influence in the MDBs as well. So I don't know what the solution would look like on the multilateral front, but I think the sort of antagonism has intensified over the course of these two or three years that you know China did participate in the G20 initiative and this was as Deborah Brautikin pointed out a quite big step forward and it took a foot forward and then did not see the MDBs participate in the DSSI it did not see private creditors participate in the DSSI and I think that was a bit of a um, a sort of fool me once moment for China's leaders. On the side of private creditors, I am not sure what a holistic solution would look like uh, when it comes to a debt restructuring mechanism. But I don't think there is such a, what's the word, conflict in every case between China and bondholders at the moment. I mean, in the case of Zambia, my impression is that, you know, Chinese banks and private creditors and bondholders sort of have more in common right now and could even be on the same side when it comes to pushing back against the haircuts that the IMF have mandated. So I don't think it's such um, a binary picture of China versus the private sector there. Well, in Zambia, at least under the Edgar Lungu administration, not under the current administration, there were concerns from the private creditors that the Zambian government and the Chinese government were going to reach some kind of deal that wasn't transparent, and therefore it wouldn't be equal. And so then we had Wu Peng, who was the top Chinese diplomat for sub-Saharan Africa. He went out on Twitter and said, no, we believe in equal treatment for all creditors. And so there was these questions about Chinese transparency in the lending and the debt restructuring process in Zambia. That hasn't been the case under the current administration of President Hishilema, but that was a concern earlier, and I wonder if that's still in the back of the minds of some of the private creditors. Uh, just for everybody at home who may not be keeping up with all of the acronyms, the MDRI that we've been hearing a lot about is the Multilateral Debt Relief Initiative that offered full debt relief for eligible debt from World Bank International Development Association, the IMF, and the African Development Fund. That was uh, So that was what they're talking about with MDRI. 
We've also heard HIPIC, that is the Highly Indebted Poor Countries uh, Initiative, and then also DSSI, which is the Debt Service Suspension Initiative. And that was under the G20, which one can only say has been an unmitigated disaster, a failure, a complete bust. It really wasn't effective. And that's, again, I think probably influencing where the Chinese are today. We just did a briefing a couple hours ago, Jude, and the key question that came up in our discussion, what are the Chinese doing here? What do do they want? And the best answer that I could have provided is the fact that I think that they want to bring the multilateral development banks down a notch. They don't want to destroy the banks. They don't want the Pyrrhic victory that you're talking about in your column where they become useless, but they want to give their own development banks, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, the New Development Bank, increasingly the BRICS group, more room to move because, as Yunnan pointed out, their approach to the MDBs in the early 2000s were rebuffed fairly or unfairly. But so now what I think my best guess is they're trying to give themselves more room to move in the international system. Let me put the same question to you. What do you think is the ultimate Chinese objective here in stalling out this process the way they have and bringing this fight to what they've done for the past year now, even if it means that Zambia is collateral damage? Because at that point, it's pretty evident that the Chinese are willing to flush the Zambians down the toilet for this fight. That has been pretty clear based on the past six to nine months of what we've seen. What's your take on what you think the Chinese want to get out of this fight? My views on, the, on this aren't as strong as yours in that direction. Here's what I think is happening. If we listen to Chinga's press conference, but before his press conference, if you listen to Xi Jinping's comments, in which he said that, There seems to be a concerted effort by the Americans to contain China's economic growth, to press China's economic growth. Then if the Chinese then see the multilateral institutions as sort of an extension of Western policy, see the multilateral institutions as policy banks for the West, then it sort of makes sense that China's pushback against this. It's not so much that China wants to bring down the system. It's that China wants to reduce the influence of its rivals using this system to get at China. And and in the process, to your point, as long as China continues to take a position, a hardened position against the West's hardened position, then the countries like the Sri Lankas and the Zambias are going to face this difficulty that we're talking about. And that's why I think China has a long history in Africa. As we know, 33 years running now, first visit the foreign minister makes is to Africa. Five days after independence, Zambia established diplomatic relations with China. Zambia was one of the co-sponsors of the UN resolution granting the the Security Council space and China space at the UN People's Republic of China away from the Republic of China, Taiwan. So Zambia has claims to some of the deepest and longest standing relationships with China in Africa. And they they think the, the same goes on. So it would seem to me then what is missing is if you are China and you feel like you're being contained, if you feel like you've been pushed into the corner, then you kick back. Not so much because you hope to hurt your friends, but because you feel you've been cornered. And so as long as the West sees the debt issue as a weakness for China to be exploited, then we're stuck in a situation where the Zambias and Ghanas and Ethiopias and Kenyas and, and whoever else is in line of the world are going to to struggle. So I think we can remind our Chinese friends, I mean, every Chinese foreign minister has spoken of Africa as being friends in war and wheel, to be able to shift the narrative a bit. So in terms of what China wants, I wouldn't even say that it's because China wants its development finance institutions to gain prominence, because China isn't replacing anyone in Africa. Since China stopped lending into Africa at the volume it did, we haven't seen a pickup in European lending to Africa. So if China's development banks start to lend a lot of money, they were gaining in prominence. China doesn't necessarily have to cut down the Western institutions to size. I think China is basically defending itself from what it believes are intrusions from the West in trying to contain its growth and that Western multilateral development banks are instruments of that fight against China. That, that's how I see it. Yunan, let's hear from you what you think. I couldn't agree more, Jude. I think there is this kind of risk when you turn these debt discussions into a matter of political face and creating this kind of defensiveness just escalates the problem to a point where no one can really quite back down on it. 
If I can chip in on the domestic politics side, I think, Eric, your question is sort of assuming that China has a sort of strategy when it comes to dealing with overseas debt and its foreign policy. And I'm not sure that's so clear cut. And, you know, this year we have the Lianghui going on where we're going to see a lot of reshuffles in key ministers, uh, in within key ministries, including the Ministry of Finance, including the People's Bank of China. And I just don't think that the domestic politics is going to treat overseas debt restructuring in uh, small African countries as a priority. The other matter is that doing any kind of debt forgiveness is a hugely difficult issue for any of these Chinese banks, which you know you can understand they are very, very unwieldy, politicized bureaucracies that make any kind of autonomous decision making very, very difficult, especially if it's a decision that loses money on a loan. So there are a lot of conservative tendencies within how Chinese banks operate that mean that they don't really want to be held accountable for for any kind of losses that that reflect badly on, on individual bankers or for the institution. And they're also incredibly fragmented. There isn't really a centralized authority at present that can really coordinate between all of these different creditors. And we've seen this play out as a problem in, in the Zambian case. The other matter is that a lot of these banks are probably going to see their leaders reshuffled as well this year, towards the end of this year. And so in this mix, in the midst of this political uncertainty, I am not optimistic on any positive or dramatic shifts in how Chinese creditors are going to be approaching the problem. Jude, there was recently a very interesting kind of like press flurry with, you know, there was a delegation, an Ethiopian delegation that visited Beijing, I think a week or two ago. And there was suddenly all of the speculation in the Ethiopian press that Ethiopia's debt distressed situation might be solved in the back channels because Ethiopia is such a like uniquely big kind of uh, proportion of Chinese debt that there's, you know, that there's kind of like debt swaps and other like, like import boosting and other kinds of kind of methods that might be used within the the Ethiopia China relationship and that would kind of you know bypass the 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 larger kind of IMF driven you know debt restructuring process subsequently then the the Chinese foreign ministry completely shut that down and they're like yeah no that's not not happening at all but i was wondering like do you foresee any kind of alternative processes evolving within the China Africa space or to the China global south space that's outside of the of the kind of debt restructuring processes as we know them now yeah, I mean, look, a part of the thing is, and I'm doing a piece on that now, is just from the frustration of a stalled process, you have to remember that since 2020, we've seen nothing. I mean, the only place we've actually seen some movement on the debt issue has been Chad, and that's because a significant portion of that debt was owed to Glencore. And because of an increase in commodities prices, Chad, it just became a moot point because Chad was able to resolve that. Outside of that, we've seen nothing. So if you're Ghana, if you're in Ethiopia, Ethiopia has been at war. Ethiopia has had to spend money it doesn't have fighting a war. If you're Ghana and you're Ethiopia, it makes sense that if you're frustrated, you're going to try to find another means of being able to do this. And our good friend, Hannah Ryder, has this idea through her organization, Development Reimagine, of something she calls a borrower's club. Just as the creditors have a club like the Paris Club. Borrowers would be able to create an informal organization, sort of shared notes, create shared positions so that they can start bilateral negotiations with China. The difficulty in this point is, to Yunnan's point, the loans may be predominantly from China Exim, but they're not exclusively from China Exim. The loans are spread across Chinese policy banks. Chinese policy banks are not as coordinated as we would hope they are. And as she noted, they are also staid bureaucracies who have a tendency and an inclination to conservatism. So this idea that Ethiopia can show up or Ghana can show up and get some sort of relief, I'm not as hopeful about that process. I do think, though, however, that if they were to create an external informal borrowers club of sorts and coordinate it among themselves, maybe they might be able to push the conversation. I think they can push the conversation in that way. They can push the conversation on the Western side to be able to say, you know, you are making this problem worse by continuing to treat this debt problem as a great power thing. And then push the Chinese and say, look, China is not without fault in how it lent money too. I mean, like every single person, there's enough blame to go around here and we should now begin working on a technical proposal. So I'm not as hopeful that individually African countries are going to get any deal. 
But there may be a possibility if they were to organize themselves, invite Pakistan, invite Sri Lanka, invite other countries outside of Africa, create this group and try to engage the process from outside of that, they might be able to move the process forward. And one other very important point here, based on Deborah Braudigam's research at the China-Africa Research Initiative, from her work on Zambia, is that we've been talking about the Chinese policy banks. But when we look at the number and variety of creditors in Zambia, it started at 18. And China Development Bank and the China Exim Bank were only two. But then Huawei was in there. ICBC, the Industrial Commercial Bank of China, was in there. The Bank of China was there. Uh, there were private companies that were loaning money. So there is a lot of diversity in the Chinese creditor portfolio that makes this borrowers club even more important in order to be able to understand what's going on. So very interesting point there. I'd like to close our discussion today with some advice that each of you would give different stakeholders. Jude, I'm going to task you with what are you going to advise African governments on how to manage through this process that we're in. If what Yunnan is saying is true, which I believe it is, that we are in this period of great domestic leadership transition and flux in China. Therefore, we're not going to see quick, prompt resolution of this anytime soon. Jude, your task to think about is what would you advise African presidents and prime ministers on how to manage on this? Yunnan, your assignment in this question is what would you advise uh, Western stakeholders in, from your vantage point in London uh, to the United States, the European Union, and also to the UK government on how you think they should best manage through this process? So let's start with you, Yunnan, and then we'll go to Jude. Okay, so so just a really easy question then. Um, <laughs> We're closing on the simple question. <laughs> it's just trying to help help us understand how you would what what should people do? What should people? How should they think about this? I think any kind of movement or resolution on debt problem has to focus on the needs of the debt distressed borrowers. It can't keep being held in this lens of China is the bad guy or the World Bank is the bad actor here. When we can move the conversation away from the political, when we can try to de-escalate some of the discourse that it's become embedded in and shift it to technical solutions on how debt treatments can work, whether they be reschedulings or more innovative solutions around debt swaps and keep the interests of borrowing countries in mind, that would be a great step forward. I, I would also add, you know, for, for Chinese stakeholders... I think there needs to be a push up in the recognition that that this debt issue should be something that China's leaders recognize as an important area in their foreign policy. It could be an opportunity for China to try to show itself as a responsible partner and a, and a, and a stakeholder and development partner for global South countries. But it should not be something that gets escalated into this great power rivalry. Okay, Jude, what would you tell African presidents and prime ministers and stakeholders uh, about how to manage through this current situation? So, yeah, my, my recommendation to them would be that first, right now, because of how hardened the positions have become, there is no incentive on either the Chinese side or on the Western side to be the first to give in. So something's got to give. And this idea that you can surrender your voice to the United States or to the World Bank to speak for you it's not going to get you the best outcome out of here. African voices have to be heard and they have to be forceful in a third narrative here and at least try to push the parties. So that's the first thing, you need voice. Second thing is the African Union is at the moment asking to be a member of the G20. The G20 is a global governance forum. This is a point of global governance. You want a forceful voice for the African Union here and its silence is puzzling, right? So the African Union has to be able to interject into this conversation. And with that, it means that the African Union and African governments have to invest in foreign policy. Your, your foreign policy cannot be simply responding to what others are doing. You have to invest in learning about the Chinese domestic system. You have to invest in learning about how China does business, not simply in response to what the Chinese are doing. Invest in people, experts on China, and, and knowing more about your, your, your interlocutors in these transactions. Then I would say also, look, at this point, the West has been trying to get African governments to side with it in issues on Russia. Maybe you put something on the table here that in exchange for you know, concession here, moving here so that this project goes forward. Because I'll tell you, foreign policy, whether we like it or not, includes quid pro quo. 
And so unless the Africans are active in how this is done, I foresee this thing dragging us because as it stands, as I noted, the big players here have no incentive to wind down their positions. Okay. Jude Moore is a senior policy fellow at the Center for Global Development in Washington, and he is the author of an excellent blog post on these current issues. Will China play its part in addressing African debt distress? As you can see, lots of fascinating insights there. Jude, thank you so much for joining us. Yunan Chen is a research fellow at the Overseas Development Institute in London and also author of China in the Multilateral Development Bank's Evolving Strategies of a New Power. Jude, Yunan, thank you so much for taking the time to help us better understand these issues. Jude, let's first start with you. If people want to follow you online to find out what you're reading and writing, and you've been writing a lot on this issue, especially on your Twitter channel, where can they find you? Yeah, I think people can just follow me on Twitter. It's Jude Moore, and Jude is G-Y-U-D-E. I think Eric will have it in the notes. Or you can go to cgdev.org slash Africa, and you'll find stuff that I'm writing and thinking about there. And tell us, you're also firing up your podcast again, correct? This is correct. We have a podcast called Lagos to Mombasa. It addresses big questions in Africa, talking from the perspective of practitioners and researchers. Great uh, insights. So please join us for our second season. It's focused on climate and the impact in Africa. And we're going to put links to the podcast as well as to Jude's uh, Twitter handle and his blog as well, where he's posting a lot of these ideas. Yunan, if people want to follow you, where can they find you? You can find me through ODI or on Twitter at Yunan Chen. Wonderful. Yunan, thank you so much, Judy. We really appreciate your time today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. There was so much to think about. Both of these two really provide amazing insights on this. I also want to point people to, again, we heard references to Hannah Ryder's column, and I'm going to put this all in the show notes on our website for our subscribers. Hannah Ryder had a column in The Diplomat on this issue. That's very important. We also had a great column from Kevin Gallagher at Boston University's Global Development Policy Center. He wrote uh, some ideas on this. So lots of ideas going around as to what's happening and what the solution is. The key takeaway for me, though, is what Yunnan said about the leadership changes in China and how these changes are going to slow down any quick response to this. And also, we should be very concerned about the tone of the discourse now between the United States and China and what Jude talked about, the grass. That is, the when the elephants fight, the grass suffers. That's the old saying. You know, listening to Qingang's press conference and then at the same time, just before the show came on, I was watching the Senate Intelligence Committee in the United States. Uh, they did a an annual briefing with the various intelligence chiefs and it's all about China and it's all very contentious. So making sure that African governments find a space in this discourse is going to be critical. And so far, the African Union, as Jude pointed out, who would be the natural place for this to happen, has failed miserably because we're not seeing a strong articulated perspective coming from the AU to assert itself in this, to say, you need to take us seriously. You guys need to put aside your differences because people are dying and suffering because of the lack of debt relief. And it's just not happening. What's your forecast, Cobus, in terms of whether or not the African Union or some other African entity, whether it's the African Development Bank or South Africa in its capacity as the kind of loudest voice on the continent when it comes to global affairs traditionally, maybe not today as much anymore, but somebody stepping up and pushing both the US and China into their corners and saying, wait, enough, you need to think about us. Not very optimistic on that point, I have to admit. You know, obviously, South Africa has always styled itself as being as being this kind of voice of Africa. I mean, it's such a laughable concept. But the, you know, South Africa is particularly kind of messed up right now, and you know, kind of particularly kind of inward looking. And I think that's also that's true for Nigeria. It's it's true for several uh, several African countries. I think South. I think there needs to be much harder questions asked about African leadership, not only for the continent but African global leadership, particularly. African thought leadership. Because if one if one looks at, for example, the massive impact that the small island developing states have had, um, those are those are like countries like Micronesia, for example.
global have had in global uh, debates about climate change um, to the extent where you know they were actually like you know managed to get new funding mechanisms set up for to compensate um, poor countries for the development impacts of rich countries i mean those those are such small such weak countries and and yet they've had very very large kind of impacts africa is much la- much larger much richer has much many more people and yet it's falling down so spectacularly in terms of thought leadership in the world and that has not always been true like you know kind of if you look at at the cold war african countries were very strong in terms of pointing forwards towards a more kind of egalitarian setup we're not seeing that now and you know kind of i i agree with with judem where the the silence from the african union has been deafening on this issue i mean who better to talk about this issue than the african union and yet they're not stepping up so in that sense you know one can always be more disappointed by africa <laughs> that's sadly sadly the truth and you know kind of maybe i'm i'm just kind of reflecting the the very kind of gloomy mood that that's in south africa at the moment but i don't see much progress on the horizon Yeah, and it's frustrating as well that the discourse around Chinese debt in Africa has not really advanced that much over the past few years. There was an article this week in Legit Newspaper, which is one of Nigeria's main online news portals, and it pointed out that Nigeria's total public debt now has reached uh, 50 trillion naira. It's 49.9 something trillion naira, which is about 108 billion dollars. That's a huge amount of money. and the headline in the story was china and you'd think okay but they've acknowledged the fact that china accounts for 4.16 billion of the 108 billion so we're talking a, a less than 4% right china's not a factor in nigeria's debt but yet that was the headline never mind the fact that they overlooked and they buried maybe in the 8th paragraph the fact that the federal government borrowed 4.6 billion dollars in just the past 2 months alone and in the tenure of muhammadu bahari uh, from 2015 to this year nigeria's total debt total debt has gone up 300% now what's depressing about this is that a lot of the money that they're borrowing is going to fill budget deficits which is of course the worst thing you can do to borrow money for in a developing country because it's not creating wealth it's not infrastructure human development or other things it's paying salaries and that's unfortunately what's happening in a growing number of countries they simply don't have enough cash to function in their governments and that's the same case in Kenya Kobus you brought up this question of diminishing foreign exchange reserves this is another area that we've been following in Ghana Kenya and Ethiopia because hard currency is going out the door to service the debts and at the same time they are not having enough to be able to pay for imports and it's causing all sorts of follow-on problems the one issue where again i'm surprised that governments like kenya have not called out the chinese more is on the forced repayment of loans like the standard gauge railway loan where the the china exim bank refused kenya's appeal for a debt deferral so This is where again when China kind of plays the victim card as it often does here and says it's the multilateral development banks it's the commercial creditors it's not us we're just a small 12% of Africa's total that may be the case but in countries like Kenya China's debt profile is quite large at 6 billion dollars and the fact that they are not relenting and giving the Kenyans any breathing room to me is where there's an opportunity for the Kenyans to even civil society organizations to push back and say hold on you're not only the victim here but you can do something meaningful and give us a break on this repayment give us you know a two or three year repayment moratorium so that we can just catch our breath save our hard currency and get out of this hole that we're in. So I think again the Chinese there's room for criticism of the Chinese here uh, but at the same time as I said at the beginning of the show the Chinese are absolutely right in pointing out some of the hypocrisies coming from the west particularly on this question of not loosening up the uh, fiduciary laws for bondholders. Yeah, absolutely. Um and I mean that you know kind of that kind of push from civil society would be very welcome, I think. But I think you know kind of I think these governments particularly are not going to be pushing China because I think they still see China as one of their only options. You know, like in the in the same era, the same like 10 years or so when we saw really Chinese bilateral lending really expand. At the same time, western bilateral lending was shrinking and it was that 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 space was to a certain extent replaced by China. 
but it was also it was replaced particularly by the western private sector and you know kind of who in in a moment where interest rates were very low in 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 western countries they were out on the frontiers hunting for yield so i think african countries they have a limited amount of of political will i think to push china because i think they still see china as the only option compared to like either very very expensive western debt or very very slow western led multilateral debt which usually has a lot of conditions attached to it so you know kind of like there there are other options beyond that but not so many and i think china really looms large there and they also know that china is politically very sensitive and they're very politically like particularly sensitive about being called out in public so maybe there's pressure happening behind the scenes but i don't think there's going to be pressure happening in public Let's continue the chat about geopolitics here. And this is, again, where Africa may come up short. So Jude pointed out that there may be bigger reasons in terms of why Sri Lanka was chosen for this debt debt relief by China Exim and agreeing to the terms that they'd previously said it wouldn't because, in part, this involves not only India, but also the Japanese, who are key players in this, two of China's biggest rivals in Asia – And also the United States was pounding the Chinese pretty hard on Sri Lanka. Let's not forget that Sri Lanka is ground zero for the debt trap narrative, which is the port of Hambandota, which we've talked about extensively on this program. So getting Sri Lanka off the table in terms of being a debt relief issue for the Chinese makes a lot of sense in terms of politics and narrative. But watch, keep your eye on what they're going to do next in Pakistan. And that is going to be another interesting case because you're going to see very different treatment of Pakistan than you will see of Zambia, Ethiopia, Ghana, and other countries because of the geopolitical importance that Pakistan poses for the Chinese and presents for the Chinese. Pakistan is a main gateway to trade via the Indian Ocean. And at the same time, it is a major buffer against India. It is the source of a lot of or destination of a lot of investment for the Chinese through the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. The Chinese own about a third of Pakistan's $100 billion of debt. Just this week and last week, the Chinese extended uh, $700 million of new credit to the Pakistanis to reinforce their foreign exchange reserves. So they're going to do things in Asia that they're probably not going to do in Africa. But if I were sitting in any African capital and advising a president or prime minister, I would be keeping my eye on what they're doing in other parts of the world and then going to the Chinese embassy and saying, hey, listen, what you did for Pakistan, we want a little bit of that here and really trying to put that pressure on. But one of the problems that we found in our discussion with various African stakeholders is that they're not focusing enough attention on what the Chinese are doing in other parts of the world. So that question of the knowledge gap is also, I think, something to consider. Yeah, exactly. That's why we need a borrowers club. You know, kind of. I think that's, that's exactly that why is, we need the borrowers club. That's yes. a good point. Yeah, and other form of global south kind of group forming. Well, let's leave the conversation there. We are somewhat obsessed with this issue in our daily coverage, and we write about it probably more extensively than anybody else does. And so, if this is a topic that is of interest to you, and really trying to understand the motivations on all sides of this. So we look at it from the African side, the Chinese side, and and then the Western stakeholder side, and really trying to help our readers figure their way through this tangled mess of politics, economics, finance, and development finance. Then go over to chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. Try out our newsletter for free for 30 days. Uh, We also offer student and teacher discounts. So if you would like to get the coupon code for that, it's half off. Send me an email, eric at chinaafricaproject.com with your .edu or your university address, and I will then send you the codes for that. So what a great conversation. Very, very timely. We're really looking forward to continuing this discussion with both Yunnan and with Jude. And also then we're going to be following up with Kevin Gallagher from Boston University next month. He's got some interesting work coming out on this topic, and he's thinking a lot about this as well. So we're really excited to be able to continue this discussion going forward. So let's leave it there. Kobus and I will be back again next week with another episode of the China in Africa podcast. For Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Tag us on Twitter at ChinaGS Project and visit us at ChinaGlobalSouth.com. If you speak French, check out our full coverage at ProjetAfriqueChine.com and AfriqueChine on Twitter. That's Afrique with a K. And you'll also find links to our sites and social media channels in Arabic. <laughs>